0: As we are becoming abundantly aware in the book of Hebrews, the writer is making use of the stories and the prophets and the Psalms of the Old Testament so that we might learn more and more about Jesus. These images, these individuals, these processes in the Old Testament are all vital to the book of Hebrews, how it works and how it unfolds the story of Jesus Christ. And our passage of scripture this morning really isn't any different here at the beginning of Hebrews chapter five. At the end of the last chapter, chapter four, we were introduced to the idea that Jesus Christ is our great high priest, that Jesus led the sinless life. He led the sinless, sinless life as God among us and has now ascended back into heaven, is at the right hand of the throne of God on high. So we've been introduced to this notion of Jesus as our great high priest. So now here in chapter five, what happens is the book of Hebrews begins to unfold the significance of that, the importance of that, what that means for us when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. The Old Testament high priest, played a critical role in the relationship between the people of God and their God. It's how God structured things in their annual system, their system of sacrifices and offerings. The high priest plays this critical role. And in fact, it was, in its way, a necessary role. As we've watched unfold in the book of Hebrews, the people in the Old Testament couldn't get directly to God, so to speak. They had to get to Him through the work of the priest's especially the work of the high priest and the sacrificial and offering system that they had. But what we learned at the end of chapter 4 is that because of Jesus, we now have direct access to the throne of the grace of God. We need Jesus to experience the power and the grace and the salvation and the goodness of God. Our passage this morning unfolds in two steps. The first step is this. We're going to talk about the role of the high priest. Who gets to be high priest? Who chooses the high priest? What are the duties of the high priest? Maybe even as opposed to the rest of the tribes, uh, the rest of the tribe of the priesthood and what they did. What is the role of the high priest and what is that going to tell us about Jesus? So that's the first step of our passage this morning. The second step Is answering the question, well, then how does Jesus fulfill this role as high priest? The utterly unique and sinless life of Jesus fulfills this role for us in ways that no other human being ever could. So the role of Jesus Christ as high priest is necessary for us. We need a mediator between us and God. We need a guide into the presence and the power and the goodness and the salvation of God. So Jesus becomes our great high priest. And what we're going to discover, I think, as the passage unfolds, is that this is going to force us to come face to face with a fundamental reality of human existence, and it's this. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the only way to God. If it's the case that we don't really know God, why don't we know God? Why don't we know who He is? Why don't we experience Him maybe the way that we know we should or want to experience God? If our faith feels small and ineffectual, why is that the case? Well, what do we do with Jesus? I believe the answer to questions like that is what do we do with Jesus? How do we answer and fix sometimes the answers to those kinds of questions in our relationship with God? What do we do with Jesus? Well, let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter five, starting in verse one, and it goes like this. For every high priest is chosen from among men, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to god to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness because of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people and no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Every high priest is chosen from among men, and they're appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. The Old Testament priesthood is going to become really important to the next three or four chapters of the book of Hebrews, why God established it, what God established them to do. You see, the Old Testament priesthood was created by God For a lot of reasons, but one very central reason was this. They were established by God to ensure the covenant relationship between God and his people. Several times in the Old Testament, we read that covenant relationship, a word we don't always use, but it's a, it's, it's a little bit like a legally binding relationship where God says, I will be faithful to you, I will be your God, and the people then respond by saying, we will be faithful to you, you will be our God. So we have this back and forth covenant relationship. God will be his people's God, we will belong to our God. So the priesthood is designed by God to help ensure that that relationship stays close, stays tight. So this is what the priests do. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but you might have noticed that sometimes some people wander away from God. (laughs) We wander from God. We wander into our own ways of doing life. And the priesthood exists, lives among the people to help ensure that that doesn't happen very often. Or even if it does, the priests are designed by God to draw the people of God back into relationship with Him. This is a lot of what the priests do amongst the people. The priests of God run the temple sacrificial system. So if you've ever read pieces of the Old Testament like the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy or other places, you read about this complex sacrificial system and the priests would run all of that inside of the temple. The priests who are the members of the tribe of Levi are not just in the temple of God, they're in the city of Jerusalem, but God gives them cities to live in all amongst the people of God. So if you didn't live close to the temple, you always had a family or a group of priests, Levites, who lived either in your city or nearby. So you had this close connection to those who are maintaining this covenant relationship between people and their God. So this is why we have an entire tribe of priests. They're all over the place. But the high priest is what we're talking about this morning specifically. The high priest plays a unique role amongst this group of individuals, even a unique role inside of the sacrificial system itself. So notice this in a little bit of the language. Here in verse one, it says again, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Notice there in verse four again, a little bit about who this priest is. It says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. So here's one of the first things we need to note about the high priest in the Old Testament. And remember, we're always on our way to Jesus Christ. But let's notice this. God picks the high priest. The high priest is not democratically elected. The high priest doesn't come up from among the people, you know, electioneer, and then maybe get elected every two or three years. The high priest is not picked from amongst the priests. Well, maybe if the people don't know how this works, the priesthood should know how this works, so the priests elect a high priest. That's not how it happens. God appoints a high priest. So here's what this means. The high priest is God's man the high priest is appointed by God to fulfill God's role. So in the end, the high priest is ultimately responsible to God for what he does or does not do, and in this sense is not beholden to the people with what he does or does not do, but to God himself. So the people may gripe They may complain, the people may wander away from God, but the high priest is not beholden to them to bend to their will. If the people of God become broken and wicked, they cannot then elect for themselves a broken and wicked high priest. Does that make sense? He's appointed by God, so he's responsible ultimately to God. So he stands before the one who appointed him. God picks the high priest. The second idea is this that comes out of this passage. God gives the high priest some very specific tasks. God tasks them with acting on behalf of people for the health and the vibrancy of their relationship with God. So inside of the Old Testament sacrificial system, The work of the priests as they would mediate those sacrifices, the way that it was built is that that whole system is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. People, as they would sin or or they would on a regular basis, they would bring their sacrifices to the Levites, to the temple. They'd go through the process, and the image is, is that this process is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. People would bring not just their sacrifices, but they would bring their tithe and their offering to their local Levites or even to the temple from time to time as well. And the symbolism is, is that their sacrifices are brought for the forgiveness of their sins, and their tithe and their offering is brought as worship to God, again, mediated by the high priest. So God gives the priests tasks, the high priest tasks to fulfill The third thing that comes out of this passage is this. The high priest is a sinner just like everybody else. And I just love this language. He can deal gently with the ignorant and with the wayward. It's a little bit of a pat on the head for all the rest of us, you ignorant and wayward people. (laughs) Since he himself is beset with weakness, every high priest is a sinner before God every high priest is a broken human being. So because of this, the text says this, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin. So because every high priest is a a sinner just like everybody else, the high priest is gonna offer sacrifices not just for the sins of God's people, but for himself as well. Now there happens to be one moment In the calendar of God's people in the Old Testament, where the high priest really gets to shine, and it happens on the Day of Atonement. Now, I would encourage you, if you haven't read this in a while, and I'm guessing most of us probably haven't, to go back and read Leviticus chapter 16. The whole thing is about the Day of Atonement, why it happens, how it unfolds, and if you kind of read through that slowly and carefully, you're going to be struck by by this is, this is a day-long process. This is a big deal. There's a lot of stuff going on in the Day of Atonement. But here's what's important for us this morning. Once a year, on this one day, the high priest is going to make a single sacrifice that is symbolic of covering all of the sins of all of God's people. So only this one person, at one time of the year, is allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, remember, we talked about this a little bit last week, and again, it will become even more important as the book moves on. But inside of the temple, we've got this architecture of worship We move from these large courtyards to the smallest room in the very center of the temple. And that center, that that smallest room is the Holy of Holies. And the idea is, is this is where the presence of God dwells. And the Holy of Holies is separated from everything else with this gigantic veil, this thick veil that stands between the Holy of Holies and everybody else. Because the idea is this, God is pure and holy and righteous, and I am a sinner, and I have to be separated from that presence because I will die as a sinner in the presence of God. So we're separated by this veil. But once a year, one man is allowed in. It's the Day of Atonement, it's the High Priest, And it's after a series of sacrifices. So, in fact, this day for the high priest is actually an elaborate process. The high priest is going to bring three animals into the temple. Two of those animals are going to have a bad day. (laughs) He's going to bring a bull, and he's going to bring two goats for the sacrifice and for the process of the Day of Atonement. The first thing that the high priest does is he sacrifices the bull. And the sacrificing of the bull is symbolic of the cleansing of his own sin. Remember Hebrews 5 said he has to offer sacrifice for his own sin as well as for the sins of the people. He can't enter the Holy of Holies until he's gone through this symbolic process of cleansing, the sacrifice of the bull. And then there are two goats left watching all of this happen. The two goats, between the two goats, the high priest is going to cast lots between these two goats. And the goat that gets the short straw is then sacrificed as a symbol of the sacrifice that covers all of the sins of all of God's people for that year. So that goat is sacrificed for that sin. The second goat is prayed over by the high priest. He places his hands on that goat, prays over the goat, and then lets the goat go. See, the goat is released into the wilderness to just disappear, that goat actually becomes what we call the scapegoat. And the image is this, is that that goat carries the sins of God's people away. Through this whole process, this is what has to happen. So the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies, so the sins of God people can be at least symbolically cleansed. All of this has to happen. But guys, at this moment, We have to stop and we have to make sure that we see something at this point. Jesus perfectly and eternally completes everything that is symbolized on the day of atonement. Jesus perfectly and completely fulfills everything that happens on the day of atonement. Jesus is the sinless high priest who enters into the presence of God. Jesus doesn't offer sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. He is the sacrifice and he is the one that carries our sins away from us. We read the passage of Scripture last week. We sang, it, we sang about it this morning. I see the veil torn and the doors flung wide and there's glory as I step inside. He is the sinless high priest who tears that veil down and grants entrance to the people of God in and out of the presence of God itself. The Old Testament high priest is pulled into the story at this point by the writer of Hebrews, not just so that we have an opportunity to talk about the complexities of Leviticus chapter 11, so that we can talk about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he does. So that's exactly what the writer does. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here now the writer takes all that information about the high priest and now begins to talk about Jesus through that lens. So just as the high priest is chosen by God, so Christ, the writer says, is appointed, is anointed by God to do this job as high priest. So then the text quotes two Old Testament passages to kind of help make the point. The first is from Psalm 2, verse 7. We've run across this passage now a couple of times in the Book of Hebrews, in Psalm chapter two, verse seven. God the Father turns to speak to God the Son, and He says, "You are my Son today; I have begotten you." And it's a story of the Son of God becoming King of Kings and Lord of Lords over all things. That's the story there. That's what's important about Psalm chapter two, verse seven. And then in verse six, the writer quotes from Psalm one hundred and ten. Now, let's keep in mind that Psalm 110 is one of the most commonly quoted psalms, not just in the book of Hebrews, but throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So, you might do good as you kind of think through this to go back to Psalm 110. It's sure Just read it through, and you're going to hear a lot of the New Testament as you read through that. But the passage that's quoted here in this, in this moment, comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. And that whole verse says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Everybody goes, ah, of course, Melchizedek. Hmm. Put a bookmark on the name Melchizedek, because he's going to come back later on, and we're going to talk about him. In Hebrews, he's going to become important, but what the symbolism is for us now is that Melchizedek stands as an example of an eternal priesthood, one that does not end because of death. That's the symbol of Melchizedek. So the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So God appoints Jesus as his high priest. Now, Jesus is well aware of this. In fact, he describes this kind of thing to his disciples a handful of times. And one of these moments Happens in the Gospel of John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says this. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, and he's talking about the cross, when you have lifted up the Son of men, Man, then you will know that I am he. Now listen, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. The Father sent me. The Father will not leave me. And I perfectly do everything God has tasked me to do. Jesus is not the people's choice a winner for God. He's not. Once a generation, we throw an extravagant, ridiculous gala So that we can learn who is the People's Choice Award winner for God. And then that person gets to have it. We don't appoint him, God appointed him. He is God's man on earth to do what God needs to have done. He isn't beholden to what we want him to do. He says, I perfectly do everything the Father tells me to do. He is God's son. He came to do what God asked him to do. And just as is the case with the Old Testament high priest, it doesn't matter if the people gripe and complain or reject him flat out, Jesus does what the Father called him to do. Now, this is important, not just in our understanding of who Jesus is, but what it means for us to have relationship with our heavenly Father. You see, guys, we're going to miss out on God completely if we decide to choose our own small g God, if we decide to choose our own path, our own way of life, our own set of what it means to have meaning and purpose and salvation in this life. If we choose our own way, we will miss God's man, Jesus Christ, who is the necessary connection between us and God. And this rubs the American spirit the wrong way. Whether we think about it consciously or not, it is just built into our societal DNA that we learn things like we are supposed to fulfill our heart's desire. We're supposed to follow the desires and the whims that well up from within us, and we will only be happy if we do those kinds of things. But you see, if we do that, we will miss God. Because the path is through Jesus Christ, not through my own heart's desire. So Jesus is appointed by God as the high priest. And then it says this, in the days of his flesh there in verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications just as the high priest would mediate through prayer and sacrifice on behalf of the people of God. So Jesus does the same. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries in tears to him who is able to save him from death. So just as the high priest would offer prayers for the sins of God's people, Hebrews tells us that Jesus intercedes for us as well. Now part of what's cool about a passage like this is that Hebrews here is recalling a few moments in the Gospels that you and I can actually go back and read. I mean, we read something like this, and this is, this is really dramatic. It says that while Jesus was here on earth as our high priest, he's praying for you and me, sometimes in ways that are torturous for him emotionally. Right? He is really into this. Well, we can actually go back and we can read some of these prayers. One of them happens in the Gospel of John chapter 17. And if you go in your Bible to that point, A lot of your Bibles are going to have section headings, and the section heading at the beginning of John 17 actually says Jesus' high priestly prayer. And here's how it begins. Listen to some of what it is that Jesus is praying on our behalf. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is the day before the cross, and that's what Jesus is talking about. Since you have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The whole chapter is this high priestly prayer. Jesus praying to God on behalf of his people. This is eternal life. They may know you. This is why Christ is come. This is why our perfect sinless high priest is sacrificed upon the cross that they may know you. This is his prayer on behalf of us. Guys, we recognize something in this passage as we watch this two step motion happen. Who is the Old Testament High Priest and where are, we on, where are we with Jesus? We need Jesus to get to the God we need. We need Jesus to get to the God we need. We need him in his sinlessness. We need him in the work that he does. We need him in all that he teaches us and shows us. We need him in the sacrifice upon the cross. We need him in his victory over the grave and his resurrection. We need him ascended into heaven at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting to call his children to be with him while he is ever interceding for us. We need Jesus to get to the God that we need. Jesus prays all of this on the day before the cross. That night, we get another image, we get another picture of some of Christ's praying, and we hear echoes of this passage in Hebrews as we read from the Gospel of Luke. Verses 41 through 44 say this, "'And he withdrew with them. "'He walked away from his disciples about a stone's throw "'and knelt down and prayed, saying, "'Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. "'Nevertheless, not my will.'" But yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him." This is incredible language about Jesus Christ, because all of this hinges on his sinlessness, and his perfect divine being while he is here with us in human form. And yet we get this language. He was heard because of his reverence. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered, and being made perfect, he became. So we get this incredible language about Jesus. When we read that um, he was heard because of his reverence, that word reverence there should be understood as awe or devotion or even submission. And Jesus has already told his disciples, and we've read it, that he is perfectly submitted to the will of the Father, and that includes the cross. So Jesus is clear to his disciples about what that submission looks like. And this is important. Remember again that human high priests were sinners who had to make sacrifice for themselves to get into the presence of God. That was that imagery. Jesus, being sinless, the sacrifice he makes is not for him. It's for everybody else. It's not for him. It's for you and for me, right? So, he was heard because of his reverence, his submission to that and he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. Now, there wasn't anything for Jesus to learn in terms of things that he did not know until he was taught them or experienced them. This phrase means to practice a habit. In other places in the New Testament, this this verb is translated as disciple. It means to follow, inhabit, perfectly. Jesus perfectly practiced obedience, And it says, even through suffering. This should just take us aback from time to time that Jesus perfectly practiced obedience to his heavenly Father even through the cross itself. Why? Well, it's the same answer to the question, well, why the complexity of Leviticus chapter 16? Because we have to get to a point where you and I can now approach the throne of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So he perfectly obeys. And that is why you and I now can be in relationship with God. And being made perfect, this just doubles down on that last thought that Jesus perfectly completed the task. He didn't move from imperfect to perfect, but he perfectly did the job he was given. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to everyone who thinks Jesus is a nice guy. He became the source of eternal salvation to everyone who thinks that Jesus is one of several really good religious leaders. He becomes the source of eternal salvation to a few people who think he might be the one. He's the source of eternal salvation for anyone who obeys him who obeys him, guys. The Old Testament high priest performed a ritual that covered the people for a year. That's the image. The priests themselves are constantly, day in and day out, and the writer of Hebrews is gonna make a point of this as well, performing sacrifices on a daily basis, on a minute-by-minute basis to cover the sins of people. So this is happening over and over. But Jesus becomes the source of eternal salvation. We need Jesus. We need the sacrifice that He made for us. We need His resurrection. We need the access He grants to the throne of grace. The whole story that the Old Testament high priests and everything that he did, all of that is a pointer his work was necessary for the people, but it was hopelessly temporary. It had to be done over and over. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father and became the source of salvation for everyone who obeys. So just as true that we need Jesus to get to the God, we need. It is also true that we need to live Like we need Jesus. Do I actually act as if He is the one? Do I actually live as if He is the one who has access to life itself? He is the one who knows how this life ought to be lived. That He is the expert, so to speak on how this life ought to be lived. What should be going on in my heart and my mind, in my relationships, in my reactions, in my actions, in my priorities, in all that I do, do I actually live like he is the one? And if I do so, I'm gonna learn to trust him in everything. I obey him and I will discover that I can trust him. I love this uh, from A.W. Tozer. He's a wonderful author. This happens to come out of a devotional that was gathered from a lot of of his writings. But E. W. Tozer says this about obedience. I like this. If we are foolish enough to do it, we may spend the new year vainly begging God to send revival while we blindly overlook his requirements and continue to break his laws. So it's entirely possible for us to live this way. We ask God to give me, give me, give me, give me while I ignore him, ignore him, ignore him, ignore him. Right? Right? Or we can begin now to obey and learn the blessedness of obedience. The Word of God is before us. We have only to read and to do what is written there in revival, where the presence and power of God is assured. It will come as naturally as the harvest comes after the plowing and the planting. Followers of Jesus Christ are learning how to obey Christ. And then his life follows. This is what it is to listen to Jesus and what life should be led like. And so I'm going to begin to obey him. I'm going to experience the life that Christ intends for me to live. It happens through obedience. So Tozer says, well, we have the word of God in front of us, right? And it sounds simple. Just read it and do what he tells you to do. Um, We've got a little exercise for you. Something struck me a while ago, one of the journaling Bibles that I had. I thought, you know, here's what I'm going to do. At the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus says, Go to all nations, make disciples, teach them to do everything that I have commanded you to do, and I am going to be with you all the time. I'm with you always. So I thought, well, I'm going to go into my Bible, and I'm going to highlight everything in the Gospels that could even be construed as a command that God gives me. So this is just a couple of pages worth of the highlights of everything that is a command. Now, What this kind of exercise would do for you and me if we do this inside of our Bibles is it just gives you a visual representation. Jesus said, do this. Jesus said, react like this. Jesus said, pray like this. Jesus said, think like this. Jesus said, don't do this. So I may not be able to just by tomorrow afternoon have all of that mastered, (laughs) but I've got this representation. I've learned something. Christ is showing me life. And he's given me things to think about and work on and pray about so that I can obey and find the life that God gives me. The culture makers inside of our world right now, whoever you consider to be power brokers and media or whatever the case may be, our culture makers have simply decided that our culture would be better off without God And we'd be better off without a bunch of followers of Jesus Christ running around in the open doing what they do. Our culture makers have decided that's gonna be a better way of life. And if the Christian or if the church decides that culture is right about that, it necessarily means two things. First, we will stop obeying Jesus Christ. And secondly, we will start obeying somebody else. It is the way the human heart is wired okay? It's just like like night follows day. There's no way of breaking this movement. If we decide we're not going to obey Jesus Christ, it is not the case that we will suddenly obey nobody and nothing else. It's that we will naturally long for and look for and find someone else to obey. It's just the way we work. Even though we don't like thinking in those terms, we obey someone else's standards of life instead of the ways Of Jesus Christ. So, when we as individuals or as a culture, we reject transcendence, we reject the existence of God and the moral imperatives that God gives us, when we reject all of that, we go hunting for other things to take its place, but nothing else can take the place of God. Nothing else can become what God is for us. But man, we grab for this all the time. So, to use the language of our passage of Scripture to make this point, When we reject the perfect and eternal salvation of Jesus Christ, we go back looking for hopelessly temporary salvation schemes. The movement of our passage was this the Old Testament high priest performs this sacrifice, and inside of that system, it's a critical piece to all of this. It's a necessary piece as the system works, but it has to be done over and over because it is hopelessly temporary. Then comes Christ, who's the final, perfect, eternal source of salvation for everyone who obeys him. And so now we're done with all this temporary stuff, and we have hold of the eternal. If we let go of the eternal, we have one place left to go, backwards to the hopelessly temporary. As we keep on finding in the book of Hebrews, why would I let go of my faith? Why would I let go of this thing that's been given to me, a sinner saved by grace, my source of eternal salvation in Jesus Christ? Do we want to know the way of the world really, really well? Then we simply do life the way the world tells us life should be done. And when we obey the world, we will know its way of life well, and we will eat of its fruit. We will bear the consequences For that life. Do I want to know the way of Jesus really well? Has that become, or is that becoming, or do I want it to become the longing of everything about me to know the way of Jesus really well? Then we learn to do life the way that we are taught it in the Word of God, in the life of Jesus Christ, and He will be our perfect, eternal source of salvation. Let's pray.